Blessed are the meek, uh, for they shall inherit the earth. We take a look at that third uh, beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. If you want to open up your Bible there, it's on page 809 in the pew Bibles in front of you. And as we're turning there, let me just say that, you know, how good it is to be in worship uh, today. I just, more and more, I'm beginning to see worship as a place of refuge, a place of sanctuary, because, oh, wow, 2020 was quite a year, and uh, who knows about 2021? It's so good to be able to know that every week we can come here and have this space uh, where we can rest in God's Word. Um, and I'm just fascinated by these Beatitudes. I mean, they're, they're so pivotal. They're so important to Jesus's overall message. But, you know, I've just been thinking lately about how these Beatitudes are so timely, right, uh, for us uh, in everything that's going on in the world. Uh, these Beatitudes that Jesus speaks uh, are just so incredibly timely for us. You know, one of the questions I think that people are asking these days is, what does this world need? And I'm sure that there's lots of opinions in response to that question. Some people might say that the world really just needs political stability, and other people would say the world needs access to vaccination, and some would say the world needs economic relief and recovery. And while I don't believe that any of these needs are wrong, I don't believe they are the most important thing that we need. I would say what we need is something that we seem to lack in today's world, but something Jesus calls blessed. And that thing that we need is called meekness. Meekness is in short supply these days, but in the end, only meekness wins. So what is meekness? Like many of these Beatitudes, we need to clarify and define what we mean by the word, because I'm guessing that none of you use the word meek or meekness in your conversations this week. Anybody, maybe? Didn't think so. Um, we encounter this word in Scripture, but it's not a real familiar part of our everyday language. Now, sometimes showing you what something is, uh, is best done by showing you what something isn't. And so we're going to talk about what meekness isn't. And as you see maybe a picture of what meekness isn't, it'll help you understand more fully what it is. Uh, so when my family and I lived in Connecticut, we would sometimes take trips up to Boston. Boston was about an hour and a half, hour and 45 away. Lots of great historical things to check out. And so we would uh, pack up the car and head up to Boston for the day. Now, to get to Boston from the Hartford area, you normally would have to take uh, what's called the Massachusetts Turnpike. Uh, it's also known as I-90. Anybody ever driven on that before? Uh, I-90 East towards Boston? Uh, it's a little more high tense, like uh, stress, than I-80. I mean, because this is what would happen. Like, sometimes we would drive to Boston, and it would be like smooth sailing. No problems. We'd just go to Boston. No big deal. We'd come home. Other times, it was just a mess. It was a parking lot, you know, just stop, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, over and over and over again. Uh, really, you could just kind of feel that anxiety rise in your chest as the cars began to pile up. You knew that you were stuck for a while on your way to Boston. And, you know, everybody in the Northeast kind of knows that Massachusetts drivers aren't the greatest, and so that made it even more stressful. 
Now, it seemed like every time we got stuck in gridlock traffic on the way to Boston, there was always that one guy who decided, you know what, I don't have time for this. I'm going to be late for the Celtics game. And so he would just pull his car out onto the shoulder and just zoom past everybody. You, you've seen that guy, right? Who just goes by everybody thinking, you know, the, the rules don't apply to me. I'm not going to be meek and submissive like all of you guys. I'm just going to pull out and cruise on towards my destination on the shoulder. Uh, certainly not meek. Of course, this was always the guy who got pulled over by the state patrol about 10 or 15 minutes later. And, you know, we kind of thought, look what happened to that guy as you drive by. Um, you know, the meek, they get to their destination a little late, but the powerful and the assertive get a traffic ticket and they end up being really late to the Celtics game. So meekness is the opposite of being assertive or rude or pushy or acting privileged. In fact, the New Testament often translates this word simply as gentleness. In fact, meekness or gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul lists in, uh, or in uh, Galatians chapter 5. But we need to be careful here. Uh, meekness is not weakness. We can misunderstand this sometimes. So if you've ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite, you know that character Kip? You remember the scene where, where Kip goes to Rex Kwando and, and they're doing like some tryouts with, you know, karate, and Rex invites Kip up to the front to do a demonstration. And, you know, Kip is just kind of a noodle. You know, he just kind of does this kind of thing. He's just not really into it. He's just kind of weak and passive. I mean, that's not what it means to be meek. Uh, meek doesn't necessarily mean that you're just uh, weak. For example, Jesus Christ is meek, right? But he's also the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In fact, Jesus is the one who holds all power and all authority, and yet Jesus is meek. Or another example would be the martyrs. The martyrs, those, uh, those men and women of the early church especially who laid down their lives, who went to the Colosseum and were devoured by lions rather than deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Those people were meek, but they were also bold and courageous. So really to be meek doesn't mean that you're necessarily lacking power, but what it means, rather, is that you are in complete submission to the one who holds all power. It means that you know who calls the shots, that you know who holds the keys, you know who opens doors and who shuts them, you know who pardons and who condemns. You know that all power belongs to God, and so you submit yourself to that power in humble, confident trust, not taking things into your own hands. So in the Scriptures, we get all kinds of examples of meekness. So this is what meekness looks like. So for example, you got this guy Abraham in Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. Abraham has gone to uh, the, the promised land that God promised to give him, the land of Cana. And God says, I'm going to give this to you. But then he runs into a difficulty. The, the land really can't support both him and his nephew Lot, who came, all of them with their livestock and their herds. And so, to avoid this conflict, uh, uh, Abraham goes up on this high point where he and Lot can see all the land, uh, and, and he says to his nephew Lot, you know, let's not quarrel. Um, why don't you take whichever part of the land you want, and I'll take the other? Now, you can imagine that Abraham could have said, you know what, I'm Lot's uncle, I'm older, God promised me this land, 
I'm just going to take the best, and we'll let Lot have whatever is left over. But that's not what Abraham does. Abraham is meek. He trusts in God's promise, God's power, God's promise to deliver on his own time, his own terms. And so Abraham says, you know what, Lot, you take whichever one you want, and I'll take the other one. And as the story progresses, we actually see that the meekness wins, right? Because Abraham eventually does inherit the land with his family, the people of Israel. Lot ends up having to kind of hightail it out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose the better part, but actually has to leave the land. You see, meekness wins. Or there's Moses in the book of Exodus. You know, Moses brings the people of Israel out of Egypt, but during that time of wandering in the wilderness, you know that the people gave Moses a really, really hard time. They criticized him. They, they kind of said, you know, Moses, you're a terrible leader. You brought us out here in, in the wilderness just to die, right? Why don't you just take us back to Egypt? And in fact, there's this point in the book of Numbers where things get really bad. Miriam and Aaron begin to rise up and publicly criticize Moses and say, yeah, Moses, you're a terrible leader. How come we can't be in charge? And it's right there in the next verse that we're told that Moses was one of the most meek people on the face of the earth. And so we don't see Moses, you know, rising up and saying, you know, to heck with all of you, I'm in charge. He doesn't do that. He's meek. He's gentle. He, he kind of takes all their criticisms and just keeps his head moving forward. And as the story progresses, very shortly after, Arian, Aaron and Miriam actually die in the wilderness. And Moses, though he does not go into the land, he gets to the threshold of the land and God allows him to see it from a distance before he dies. You see, meekness wins. Or then there's David, King David, who was anointed by God as king of Israel. He's a shepherd out in the, the fields. Nobody even notices him, but God notices him, and God anoints him and says, you're going to be king. But the crazy thing is, is that God anoints David to be king while Saul is king. And, and so rather than going and just taking the kingship, getting together a band of people to go and just take it for David, he doesn't do that. He submits to God's timing. He submits to God's process. And so he says, okay, God, I'm going to take this when you give it to me. And so we see this example of meekness in David as he actually, uh, he actually doesn't take advantage of an opportunity to kill Saul, even when Saul is pursuing him and persecuting him. He honors Saul's kingship and he waits on God's timing. But in the end, Saul dies in battle the kingship is given to David, and it will be through David's family that the Christ will come. You see, meekness wins. Or there's the Apostle Paul, who, despite his uh, ministry, often had his name drugged through the mud by others. People would say, you know, that Paul is just really all talk. You know, he's kind of, he talks big, but he's not very impressive in person. Or they would say, you know, that Paul is kind of a letdown in the pulpit. He's kind of a weak preacher. He's not very impressive or eloquent. And, you know, maybe Paul's not even a real apostle. All of this was kind of hurled on Paul. And what we see Paul doing is he doesn't really defend himself. He doesn't really say, not true, uh-uh. That's not what he does. He actually says, you know what, maybe those things are true. He embraces his own weakness. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that he boasts in his weaknesses because he knows that 
in his weakness that Christ's power is displayed. He knows it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Who cares if people say things about me like that? I only care about Jesus. Uh, And in the end, Paul wrote about a third of the New Testament, and nobody remembers the people who criticized him. Once again, meekness wins. But nobody is more meek than our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus is meekness incarnate. He is meekness made flesh. And this should absolutely just blow our minds, right? Because think about this. The same one who washes the feet of his disciples, the same one who welcomes children that nobody else sees, is the same one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Think about the meekness of his temptation. You know, Satan offers him in the wilderness the option of cutting corners, avoiding the cross, taking power on his own terms, but Jesus patiently says no because he knows who holds the power. Or think about the meekness of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We don't see Jesus storming the city and taking it for himself by force, but rather Jesus rides in on a lowly donkey with the praises of children. Or think about the meekness of his painful prayer in Gethsemane. He has the power to call a legion of angels to his side, but instead he takes the cup of suffering and he surrenders to arrest. And none of this makes sense to anybody in the moment. It looks like defeat. And that's why you see Peter taking the sword and cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant because they don't understand meekness. Think about the meekness of his trial. His silence before Caiaphas and Pilate really seems like weakness, but it's really power because Caiaphas and Pilate are dead in their graves to this moment, but Jesus Christ is risen risen indeed. Or think about the meekness of his cross, fixed upon those wooden beams, mocked by all those who passed by. He did not retaliate, but in the end, on Easter, meekness wins. In fact, his meekness has won you and me as God's children forever. And the truth is that it's only in Jesus and Jesus alone that you and I can be meek. It's only in Jesus that we can actually learn how to be meek, gentle people, not weak, thin, spineless people who cower and tremble in passivity and fear. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who know who really holds the power, and so we live in confident trust rather than grabbing what we think is rightfully ours. See, it's only Jesus and only in Jesus that meekness makes any sense. If Christ is not risen, then don't be meek. By all means, take what's yours and take it at any cost and at any expense because life is short and then you die if Christ is not risen. But since Christ is risen, we are called to place everything into his nail-scarred hands and be content to only take what he gives and only in his timing. The more and more I think about this meekness of Jesus Christ, It is both comforting and it's condemning all at the same time. It's condemning because when you and I look at our own lives, do we always see meekness? When we look at our lives, we are often like the guy cutting ahead in traffic, while behind us in the rearview mirror is Christ crucified. We aim at getting ahead at life, and He aims at laying down His life. 
We can see this on clear display in the way we find ourselves reacting to the state of our nation. We have to pause and we have to ask ourselves, are you meek in your conversations with others, even if they disagree with you, even if they voted differently than you? Or are you meek behind that keyboard as you're about to hit enter? Are you meek in that social media post? Are you meek in your own opinion of yourself and of your own potential and your own importance? Or have you bought into the lie that life is really about getting ahead and being the best and feeling the best about myself and achieving and having even at the expense of others? In fact, I would say that meekness is the opposite of self-esteem. Now, I know that's like borderline heresy to say that publicly because Self-esteem is like one of those doctrines of our culture. We just kind of believe it without thinking about it, that self-esteem is the most important thing and that if you have self-esteem that you'll treat others with esteem. But there's actually some research that shows that there's a connection between having really high self-esteem and feeling miserable about yourself and even treating others miserably, treating others as if we're privileged. And the reason for this, I believe, I do believe there's something to this, the reason for this is because esteeming yourself highly is a full-time, high-maintenance job. It's really hard work to convince yourself to stare in the mirror and speak to yourself, self-affirmation, or like in those classic words of Stuart Smalley, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But this isn't meekness. Really, meekness means that I'm more concerned with Jesus Christ and I'm more concerned with the needs of my neighbor and their interests than I am in affirming or building myself up. And the reason for this is because Jesus Christ died for me. And since his death esteems me so highly, it means that I'm set free to esteem others and not be preoccupied with myself which I think is the great problem of our culture. Meekness means I'm able to hold loosely my own image. I'm able to hold loosely what other people think about me, whether I'm a success or a failure in their eyes. It means I don't have to care much about keeping up a positive social media image or reputation. It means I'm okay with being small and hidden and only seen by God. Meekness means I'm able to hold everything loosely. My politics, my reputation, my success, my status, my future. I'm able to hold everything loosely except for Jesus and my neighbor because Jesus holds me so, so tightly. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you should hate or despise yourself. That's not what I'm saying. You can't look at the cross of Christ and and hate and despise yourself because Christ has so highly esteemed you. What I'm saying is that we just don't need to be preoccupied with ourselves all that much because Jesus has already been preoccupied with us. And so we're set free to esteem others and esteem God above ourselves. This is where true sanity comes from, I believe. Let's take a look real quick in closing at Mark chapter 10. I just want to show you an example of what meekness isn't and what it is. 
in this gospel reading that we just took a look at. So page 846, if you're in the Pew Bible, I don't know what the page is if you're using your Bible, but it is Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. So this is a very pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. We call this the triumphal entry or or maybe we call it Palm Sunday, you know, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, right before he's about to be arrested and crucified. And on the way, we get a request. James and John, who are part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, come up to uh, Jesus and say, hey, we want you to do something for us. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And they say, hey, Jesus, okay, when we get to Jerusalem and you take all the power and the glory, when you sit down on your throne, we want to sit at your right and your left, like your right hand, left hand guys. We want to be in the top. And Jesus says, you don't really know what you're asking for because what they don't know is that he's going to be crucified. And as, as the story continues, guess who is on Jesus' right and left? It's the, the thieves on the cross, right? Those are the ones on the right and the left of him in his glory. But they don't know that. They think it's going to be this powerful, uh, glorious Jesus taking the throne in Jerusalem without the cross, and so they want to be at his right and his left hand. And, you know, this is interesting because, you know, Jesus has just previously in this chapter earlier rebuked the disciples because they were arguing with each other about who is the greatest. And Jesus welcomes a child in their presence and says, you guys just don't get it. Like, if you want to be great in my kingdom, become like one of these guys. Um, so, you know, I kind of wonder if maybe James and John had really high self-esteem, right? They're just like, hey, I deserve this. This, is, this is, should be coming to me. I've earned this. I've been walking with Jesus through three years. I'm important. I should have a place of status. And, and then the other disciples get really mad too. They say, what? What are these guys asking for? They're upset because they want that same place of authority. Maybe they have high self-esteem too, right? Um, but there's this other character that comes right after this request. And, and uh, it's blind Bartimaeus, right? And, you know, we read these two stories together, and it may seem like they're separate stories, but they really go together. Mark is very intentional in the way that he weaves the stories together in his gospel. And so blind Bartimaeus is set right after the request of James and John very deliberately for a reason, because they contrast. To both of them, blind Bartimaeus, the beggar, and to James and John, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? But did you see the request of blind Bartimaeus? Lord, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's that spiritual poverty, remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's crying out to Jesus in humility. He's saying, in meekness, Jesus, I need you. And Jesus denies the request of Peter and John, but he hears the request of this meek man named a blind Bartimaeus, and we see the story continues. He recovers his sight, and then he follows Jesus on the way, which is a way of saying that he became a, a follower of Jesus. So people of God, may it be that God would grant us this fruit of the Spirit, this evidence of him working in our life, meekness, gentleness, and, and may it be that when the world looks at us as the church, that what they see is meekness, because meekness is in rare supply these days. May God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.